Warm greetings. It's about, oh, it's only down to 82. That's good. Well, this morning we were looking at John chapter 9. If we can just look for there for just one quick second, then we're going to get right into John chapter 10. The one thing that I wanted to point out um, regarding John chapter 9 is the uh, verse 38. And he, uh, this man that was born blind, how the Lord uh, put mixed clay and put it on his eyes and told him to go wash. And he washed and he uh, then was able to see. And when he came back and the Lord asked him, do you... Uh, believe in the Son of God. He said, Lord, um, uh, who is he that I might believe in him? And of course he said, um, Jesus said, you who have both seen, you have both seen him and it is he who's talking with you. And then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And the one thought I was having this afternoon is worship. What's the, what's the definition of worship? Worship is ascribing worth to someone, praising them, elevating them, lifting them up. If, uh, and I try to think, okay, how could I, you know, how, does, how would that work down here? And uh, let's say that I wanted to praise someone. Let's just take, uh, uh, right now there's, they have a golf tournament, okay? And let's just say uh, Phil Nicholson, one of my, he's a favorite golfer of mine. Um, and so let's say he wins the golf tournament, you know, a big, you know, a high dollar golf tournament. And I have an opportunity right afterwards, as he's still on the green, to come to him and to uh, tell him how much I, I, how great I think he is. And if I were to tell Phil Nicholson, Mr. Nicholson, you're a better golfer than I am. Now, did I ascribe worth to him? Yes, I did. But uh, what would his response be, uh, you know, after he, you know, started laughing at me? You know, he, his response would be, well, I sure hope so, you know. Because, see, if I say that, if I compare myself to him, there's, uh, that's, uh, not, that's not elevating him at all. That's not uh, praising him. That's bringing him down. When we worship the Lord... We're not to compare him with ourselves, ever. We're to be completely out of the picture. When we come and spend that 45, 50 minutes, an hour in the morning and worship the Father and the Son, we're not to bring ourselves into the picture at all, saying that, oh, we're, you know, we're such sinners, but you're such a great Savior. No, our total focus should be on him and ascribing uh, honor that's due his name. Now, if I were to say to Phil Nicholson, Mr. Nicholson, you are the greatest golfer of all time. How is that compared to you're a better golfer than me? Do you see the difference? You're the greatest golfer of all time. So when we come and we worship the Lord, we're not to compare him to our sinful selves. We're to say you are the greatest of all the universe, and you deserve all the worship of our hearts and adoration and focus. And so that's kind of the thought that I had this morning, <coughs> or <coughs> excuse me, this afternoon, 
when I was thinking about this a little bit more on, on what, what he worshipped. And, of course, we, we mentioned how that this is one verse that you should have written down, highlighted. I don't, you know, just make sure that you have this uh, somewhere that you can get to because when people come to your door and try to sell you a religion that brings the Lord Jesus Christ down to our level, making him, uh, well, one group that comes to my door says that Christ is a brother of Satan. That's, that's not bringing him down to my level. That's bringing him down to the pit. Can't get worse than that. So this is a great verse because only God is to be worshipped. And here he receives worship and he doesn't contradict it. Okay, so then we come over to uh, chapter 10. And now he's going to, again, he's focusing in on these Pharisees, these self-righteous, self-appointed leaders of Israel. And he says, most assuredly, or verily, verily, or literally, amen, amen. He says, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. Okay, so we have a thief and a robber. What's the difference between a thief and a robber? Okay, a thief takes something that doesn't belong to him. A robber does the same thing, only he does it with violence. Because, see, you could have someone go into a store and steal something, you know, you know, under, you know, pick it in their pocket and walk out. That's a thief. But then you have another person that comes in the store with a gun and says, I'm going to take, you know, this money or whatever. That's a robber. And then he goes on, of course, and, and well, I don't know if we're going to get to it, but that he says, you thief and a robber and a murderer. And, of course, we know that the Pharisees fit all of those descriptions because they not only stole, they not only kept the, peep, the, the children of Israel from believing the true Messiah, they stole that away from them like a thief. They did it with violence. Well, they, what did they do in verse 34 of the previous chapter? They tossed that, the, the formerly blind guy right out of the temple. That's with violence. Because you see, for a Jew, like we said, for a Jew to be tossed out of the temple, that was a huge deal. Because the temple was their whole life. That, that, was, that was it. And to be tossed out was uh, a very uh, significant event. And so he says here that, verse 2, but he who enters by the door is the, sheep, the shepherd of the sheep. Now, what is the door? Well, I believe the door here, first of all, the sheepfold is the children of Israel or Judaism. Okay? And the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament said that the Messiah that's to come is going to have certain qualifications, certain credentials. And anybody that comes and claims to be a shepherd or a Messiah without those credentials is a thief and a robber and a murderer. And a lot of them came. And Jesus says, I came by the door. I fulfilled prophecy. Therefore, I'm qualified and I am the Messiah. And then verse 3, to him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, 
and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. <clears throat> now we have a doorkeeper, and some, I think some versions it says porter or whatever. Now, who could that possibly be? Well, there's, there's been several suggestions on who that might be. Uh, first of all, some uh, suggest it might be the Old Testament prophets that foretold that the coming Messiah would have these particular credentials, and um, he came by that way. That, that could be the doorkeeper. Or number two, it could have been the forerunner. Who was the forerunner? John the Baptist, right. That's another possibility. You know, it's very interesting. Some of you, <clears throat> uh, my son's trying to get me on this Voices of Christ, and once I figure out how to use my phone, um, I'll, I'll get on it. But one of the best people, one of the best uh, messages that you could uh, hear is from a man named T. Ernest Wilson. And uh, I can remember as a, uh, many, many years ago, in fact, the only other time I went to Mount Hermon back in the early 70s, I heard T. Ernest Wilson, and he, he said something I'll never forget. It has to do with this, about the forerunner, you know, John the Baptist. And he was translating the Bible, because he was a missionary in Africa, into Swahili. And he, he couldn't get the right, the right word for forerunner. And so finally, he came up with the with the uh, title of do-beater. And what a do-beater is, is that when they're on a safari in the early morning, when they, you know, when it's cool in the morning, uh, they're going through this tall elephant grass that is absolutely loaded with dew, with, you know, real heavy water. And so they, they hire a little African boy to go ahead and with a big, huge stick, start beating the, Afri the uh, elephant grass, knocking the water down so that everybody doesn't get soaked. But who gets soaked? That guy. But that's, that's the, the good part. The bad part is that if you're going through elephant grass and there just happens to be a nest or a den of lions nesting, guess who gets it first? The dew beater. And everybody knows to run. So, uh, or a snake, or something, something that uh, could attack him. But he was the one that would go before everybody else, and he would beat the dew, the, the grass, so the dew would fall down, and then everybody else could pass uh, after that. And so he used that as um, the forerunner, John the Baptist. But then others believe that this is the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the one who opens people's hearts, to receive Christ. And that's true also, isn't it? Not one person in here that is saved, God saved on their own accord. Every one of us was spoken to by the Holy Spirit. Every one of us that saved was convicted of our sins, and every one of us uh, repented and trusted Christ. If you haven't done that, then you are not saved, according to Scripture. And so, this doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. Now notice, it's the voice now that's the key. Because there's two voices that he's going to be talking about. He's talking about the voice of the shepherd, and he's talking about another voice. And he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. I like that because in Exodus chapter 28, and verse 9, it talks about the high priest. And when he goes into the tabernacle, he has on his shoulders... Two onyx stones, one here, one here. And on one, he has six 
names of six of the tribes, and he has the, other, the names of the other six tribes on his shoulders. But in Isaiah 49, verse 16, it says he has us inscribed what? On the palms of his hands. And what else does he have there? He has the wounds from Calvary. What a, what a tremendous picture of that. The Lord knows us specifically by name. And why is this key? Because as we'll read in later, if we ever get to the end of the chapter, that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And then if you turn to Matthew chapter 7 and verse uh, 21 to 24, you find out that many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we've done all these miracles. And what does he say to them? What does he say to every person that's going to end up in uh, a lost eternity? He says, I never knew you. Well, if over here, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them to them eternal life. Can he ever, under any circumstance, say in the future, I never knew you? No, he can't. Because that would make him a liar. And so, as we, we come here, <coughs> and he leads them out. And, of course, we, we are referred to uh, verse 34, the previous chapter this morning. What does, the, what does the hireling do? Okay, he doesn't lead them out. He what? He throws them out. That's the difference. And so, verse 4, And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. And I, I probably have given this illustration before, but Boyd Nicholson related the time when he saw uh, a bunch of sheep in a, in a corral up in uh, Colorado, and he was, he was uh, with the shepherd. And uh, there's just hundreds, uh, hundreds of sheep are ewes and their lambs in this corral. And so the shepherd got into the corral and he was going to walk over to another part of the corral and he could hardly get across the corral. The sheep weren't going to move. In fact, as he was walking amongst the sheep, they wanted to get closer to him. Why? Because he was their shepherd. They wanted to be next to the shepherd. And so he calls to Boyd. He says, Boyd, come on over here. So Boyd gets in the corral. And did he have the same difficulty getting through that crowd? No way. Those sheep couldn't get out of there fast enough. I mean, it was just like the opening of the Red Sea. They just ran as fast as they could. Why? Because they didn't know his voice. They knew the shepherd's voice. But they didn't know his voice. And they ran. And what a tremendous illustration that that was. And so that's what this says in verse 5. And yet they by no means follow a stranger, but they will free, flee from him, for they do not know the voice. Okay, here's the other voice. The voice of the stranger and the voice of the shepherd. And it says, Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, or verily, verily, or amen, amen, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now here is something a little bit different. Before he was talking about entering into the fold. Now he's talking about he being the door. And all whoever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. 
All these false messiahs. They came, the reason why? Because they didn't have the credentials. He did. And here's one of the, the verses that we learned from a, just a little kid in Sunday school. I am the door. Notice he didn't say, I am a door. Okay? Amongst many doors. He says, I am the door. Only one. There's only one door. What's the song we sing? One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. Inside and outside are one side are you. Okay? I love that song. Okay? But that's how true that is. Jesus is the only door. No one can get to the Father but through him. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And I thought, I was thinking about that for a while. He says they go in and then they go out. What do you go in for? What's the going in? I believe the going in has to do with, again, worship. That was the first thing that 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 formerly blind man did. The very first thing he did after his confession was that he worshiped. And so you go in for worship, but what do you go out for? What do you go out for? You go out for telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ, witnessing. So you got the going in, and you you have the going out. And find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. What does it mean to have abundant life? Is the Lord talking about the quantity of the life? How much you have? Well, we know there is a truth to that because anybody that accepts Christ as their Savior has eternal, eternal. You can't get more than eternal. That's, that's you know, that goes on forever. And by the way, those of you that are in math, okay, there's a couple of people that have something to do with math. What's the difference between a ray and a line? A ray, what? has a starting point and goes on, okay? But a line goes eternally both ways. You see, eternal life is not something that starts the moment that you accept, you accept Christ. Eternal has the idea of going both ways, never having a beginning and never having an end. Where is that? Because see, everybody's gonna live forever. Everybody is going to live forever, whether you've accepted Christ or you haven't. It's just where you're going to end up when you die. Okay? The quality of the, of the life. But the eternal has to do with a person, not a gift. Well, it is a gift, but it's not a, an item. It's a person. When you receive Christ, Christ is eternal. He never had a beginning, and he'll never have an end. And you have that person in your heart, in your life. That is what eternal life speaks to of. It's not something, well, I'm going to live forever in heaven. Yes, you are, and we thank the Lord for that. But the idea is that you have a person who has never had a beginning and never has an end. And then he says here, you have it more abundantly. 
Now, is that referring to when you die? Does that, does that mean that, well, we're just going to have to grudge out this life here and you know, grin and bear it and all the problems that we run into and, and that sort of thing, is that, and then just, you know, oh, woe is me. And No. The abundant life has to do with right now. And when I, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking abundant, okay, what about my life? When I go back and I, I look at my life, and what, was, what were some of the highlights spiritually? Well, some of the highlights were spending time with men like, like Boyd Nicholson up at Yosemite and sitting around in chairs and just listening to him uh, expound on a portion of scripture, just, you know, a bunch of us sitting around the campfire. That was, to me, fabulous. Or the time that I was able to spend almost a whole afternoon just one-on-one with uh, Bill McDonald. Can't beat that. You know, that was pretty cool. Uh, but I'm thinking about my dad. You know, he was my example. Yes, it was great to rub elbows and, and get counsel from these other men, and I thank the Lord for that. But it was my dad that was my best example of what a really abundant life is all about. The second thing, the other, second thing I thought about, what's another thing? Well, the other thing, and some of you, and I hopefully every one of you, have had the incredible privilege of leading someone else to the Lord. And as you're talking to them and sharing God's word, the Holy Spirit comes into their hearts, convicts them of their sin, they repent, and they trust Christ as their Savior. And to see that person right in front of you pass from death, spiritual death, to spiritual life. Wow. That is exciting. That is, that is great. And you think that it can't get better than that. Yes, it can. Take a look all the way the second to the last book of the Bible. Third John, and you can choose any chapter you want, verse 4. You would think leading someone to the Lord has to be the absolute greatest joy that you can have in your life, but John disagrees. Notice what he says in verse 4. I have... No greater joy than what? To hear that my children walk in truth. Now, is this his physical children? No. It's the spiritual children, the ones that he has led to the Lord. To see them grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greatest joy. And I'm telling you right now, there is a lot of joy at this assembly because of our young people. And I, you know, again, young people, close your ears for the next 30 seconds. But I'm telling you, Margie and I have talked in length on what would happen if we didn't have the young people that we have. I mean, you've got Brigade, you've got Awana. Bob and Lauren can tell you, you know, without the young people helping out, it would be very, very difficult if impossible, to run their wanna. How about VBS? Oh, they stepped up, and they worked their tails off. They were exhausted. And what about camp? This summer, we had so many of our young people, I know the McKay kids were up there almost the whole summer, helping out, doing whatever they could. And the weavers, 
And all these young people, what, given, you know, they weren't in, they weren't in it for money. They weren't saying, you know, what am I going to get back from this? They did it because they loved the Lord and they were serving. And why do we have young people still here? It's because we've been trying to train them to serve, not to be served. Not to go to another church that has a better spaghetti dinner, okay, you know, which a lot of them do. They get up and they say, you know, I'm not getting fed here. Well, I'm, you're not getting spiritually fed because you haven't tried to feed someone else. That's the best way to get fed, by the way, is to try to feed someone else. Because then God will make sure that you, your needs, spiritually, are taken care of. And so, back in uh, John chapter 10 here. So, uh, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd now gives his life for the sheep. Now, normally... Sheep give their life for the shepherd because they, you know, I mean, it's an economic thing. I raise so much sheep and we sell it for mutton and that sort of thing. But here, it's the opposite. The shepherd's giving his life for the sheep. And he says that's the characteristic of a good shepherd is the one that's going to lay down his life. And he says, not willing to, but actually will lay down his life. And, of course, he's projecting and prophesying of his own death. But a hireling, he who is not of the, sh- of the shepherd, one who does not uh, own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf scatters or catches the sheep and scatters them. A hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. What's a hireling? It's just someone that's being paid to do a job. And we mentioned that this morning. You know, a lot of times in Christendom, there's people that uh, are giving the titles of pastors, and they get that job because they're going to do a certain um, agreement. They're going to perform a certain task, which is preaching every Sunday or whatever, and then they're going to, as a result, receive a certain amount of money. There's a contract going on there. That's, it's business. And you say, no, 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 they're doing it for the Lord. Really? How about next Sunday you say, you know what? We're not paying you anymore. Are you going to still stick around? That would be a good test, wouldn't it? To see if that person is a hireling or if he's got the true heart of a shepherd. And so that's what the hireling does. And he doesn't care about the sheep. You know what? If you don't like it around here, lump it. Get out of here. You know, he's that kind of person. He throws them out. But notice what he says here. In verse 14, and this is a, one of the key verses, <clears throat> and that is, is that he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my, by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And this is a tremendous thing, because what is he doing here is that he is talking about the fact that the relationship that he has with the sheep is exactly the same relationship and intimacy and closeness that he has with the father. It should go together. It shouldn't be a a separate verse. He says, the same way that I know my sheep, my father knows me. What a tremendous truth that is. And verse 16, and other sheep... 
I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and they will be one flock and one shepherd. Well, in verse 16, we see a little bit of a difference here. It starts off, and he's talking about the fold. The fold is Israel, okay, Judaism. But then he starts, and I've got New King James. I know in the, uh, the other versions is the same word. But in mine, it's, it talks about a fold, and then it talks about a flock. Well, what's the flock? If the fold is Judaism, then what's the flock? The flock is Christian, uh, Christianity. It is the body of Christ. It includes both Jew and Gentile. Because he's talking about this. He says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Well, that's the Gentile. And he's showing that in a, in a very soon time, in a very uh, uh, not too far distant, there's they're going to be no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. Here, uh, this is another verse that displays his deity. Because none of us can lay down our life and none of us can take it up again. So why is the resurrection of Christ so important? It's absolute, absolute proof that the sacrifice and the payment that Christ made at Calvary was accepted by the Father. It was a complete and done deal. See, if I were to tell you, you know, when I die, I'm going to pay for your sins. Pretty cool, right? I'm going to do that. And you're going to go, how do you know? What proof do you have? But if I said, you know what? When I die, I'm going to pay for your sin. And to prove it, three days later, after they've buried me, you know, and everything, I'm going to raise from the dead. And I thought, if you can do that, yes, I can see that you did die for my sins. And that's the, one, of the, one of the most important things about the resurrection. It was proof that when he died and said that he paid for your sins, he actually did it. It was accepted, sacrificed by the Father. And so he says, no one takes it from me. I have the power to lay it down, verse 18. I have the power to take it up again. This commandment or this commission I have received from my Father. Therefore, there was a division again amongst the Jews. <laughs> a division. <clears throat> In the book of Matthew, he talks about how that he didn't come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. And I thought, wow, I thought you were a peaceful person. No, what he was saying is that as a result of his life, his death, and his resurrection, it's going to cause a division. It's going to separate mom and dad. It's going to separate parents and children. It's going to, it's going to separate like a sword is supposed to separate the sword's not used to tickle people. It's to separate body parts. It's to separate. And he says, that's what's going to happen. And this, of course, happened even before he went to the cross. 
there was a division amongst the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That miracle, that work of God, the work of the Father, of giving that blind man his sight, shook up the whole community. It divided people. You've got this group over here, and they said, the guy's a, the guy's a, he's lost his mind. He's got a demon. The other people said, no one can do that miracle unless they're from God. In verse 22, now we kind of have a little division. We don't know if this is the same day or whatever, but it's interesting to see how this next part was set up. <clears throat> I'm going to try to cover it in the next five minutes. Okay. Now, it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. Now, the Feast of Dedication was not one of the Feasts of Jehovah. This is the only time in Scriptures that it's mentioned. Uh, a lot of people would uh, refer to this as Hanukkah, okay, Festival of Lights. And um, basically what it was is that it was a celebration that the Jews got to celebrate about what happened in 165 B.C. when uh, they finally cleansed the temple after um, uh, and, uh, Antioch Epiphanes had defiled the temple and they had it completely cleansed and then as a result they had a festival and that's what Hanukkah is all about. But the thing that I was interested in was the last part of verse 22. And it was winter. What a, what a tremendous description of the hearts of the people of Israel. You say, well, no, that has to do with the, you know, the four seasons. Yeah, and uh, I understand that. But it also meant that there was a lot of coldness in the hearts of the Jewish people. It was winter. Not only the season, but it was also winter in their hearts. And Jesus walked into the, in the temple in Solomon's porch, and then the Jews surrounded him. And said unto him, how long do you keep us in doubt? I love this. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. He's been doing that nonstop. He's been showing all these mighty works from the Father. The, the exact thing that was predicted in the Old Testament in, in Isaiah uh, 61 that the blind would receive their sight. He was giving all these credentials to show that he was indeed the Messiah. And they said, hey, you know what? Come on, just tell us plainly. Really? Jesus answered him, I told you, and you did not believe. He said, I've already told you, and you didn't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. And then here we go. But my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. People don't become believers in Christ. They don't receive eternal salvation by following Jesus. 
He didn't say, if you follow me, you'll receive eternal life. No. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. That's where salvation takes place. And what is the evidence that they're saved? They follow him. But they didn't follow him in order to become a Christian. But because they're a Christian, they followed him. How many times have we uh, talked to people, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, man, I'm a Christian. You look at their life and go, really? You know, are you saved? Oh, yeah, I'm saved. And, you know, I I can't tell you how many. (laughs) Maybe in the hundreds, I don't know. How many students I've had that, that come to me and say, yeah, Mr. Dixon, I'm saved. Really? What have you been saved from? Because <laughs> it's not your language uh, betrays you, you know. And I've had I've had students. I call them on the carpet. You know, they're they're using all kinds of foul language, which I don't permit even on the unsaved. I don't permit anybody to use that language in my my shop. And I come up and I call them up. I don't do it in front of everybody, but it, he comes up and I said, "Hey, I thought you said you're a Christian." Yeah. Well, what are you talking like that for? You know? I mean, here's a person that says, oh, I'm a football player. Okay? So you take out a football, and he looks at it, and he says, what's this? Uh, it's a football. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah you, can, you can say anything. You know, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. You're a Christian because you've put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's proven by the way you act because you follow him and then he says verse 28 and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand so the the Lord Jesus says okay here's my hand okay and my sheep are in my hand and no one can take them out of my hand then he says My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Hand of the Lord Jesus, hand of the Father. How secure can you possibly be? Someone says, can you lose your salvation? Well, the only way you can lose your salvation is if you're stronger than the Lord Jesus and you're stronger than the Father. Then I could say, yeah, you probably could get out of his hand. But that's, that's impossible. And then he says here, my father, or I and my father are one. Now he didn't say, I and my father are the same person. Notice that's very important. He didn't say that. He didn't say they're the same person. But what is he talking about? Well, if I have the power to hold you, And my father also has the power to hold you. He's saying we are one or equal in what? Power. That's the key here. We're we're the same in power. We have the same power. And of course, not only that, but all the other attributes of deity. But here he was focusing on the power, the power to hold. And he says, I and my father are one in power. And of course, the Jews... They knew exactly what he was saying. Because what happened? The Jews, um, then the Jews took up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered, Many good works 
I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, when you read this next section, it might suggest you that the Lord's kind of downplaying or trying to uh, defuse a really volatile situation when you first read it. But in reality, he's doing exactly the opposite. He's putting fuel on this thing. And he does it from the lesser to the greater. And he says, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? I think it's in uh, Psalm 82. And he called them, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? In other words, he was saying this. He said, you, guys, you call other people gods because... They are representative of God. They're like judges. And by the way, those people are, if you read the psalm that this whole thing is quoted, they were corrupt. They were absolutely corrupt people. And yet you call them gods. And yet here I am. I've proven miracle after miracle after miracle that... I have the credentials for the Messiah, and then when I call myself God, you say, well, you know, that's wrong. And that really infuriated them because they knew that they'd been caught. They knew that they were caught. And so we're going to, I know we're going to end right now, but he says, verse 37, if I do not the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. What a tremendous portion of scripture this is, his proving that he is, he is God. He is the Messiah with his credentials and all the rest. But the fact that I want to get across to you is the power of the Lord Jesus to hold us, the power of the Father to hold us, and we are as secure as we can possibly be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that the words that I spoke, those that um, were not of the Spirit, that we would forget them. But Father... Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of the Lord Jesus, beautiful words of Jesus spoken so long ago. And yet, Father, how real they are to us. And, Father, how that we could live the abundant life, not just have eternal life and when we die we're in heaven. We're so thankful for that. But, Father, we can enjoy the abundant life here by getting into your word and applying your word to our lives and seeing souls saved and serving one another with a, with a glad heart. 
Oh, Father, I pray that this will be so. Lord, part us with your blessing in your son's name. Amen.